Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome to GodPod. Uh, this is another of our theological podcasts with, um, well it's wonderful to know it's the home team here. Hooray. So it's me, Graham Tomlin, it's Jane. It is. And Michael. Hello. So uh, the old dulcet tones are back to um, address. Oh, you haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite going to say that, I was going to say <laughs> So yeah, just sort of lull you into a sense of stupor or something like that. Yeah. So um, anyway, I hope you enjoy this one. We've got uh, some. Uh, we had lots of questions come in. We actually were piling through piles and piles of questions of, um, that have come through from various listeners from all over the world. So um, uh, well done for those of you who uh, carry on listening. And someone actually said they'd listened to all of the God Pods several times. Yes. <clears throat> I wondered whether they should get out more. <laughs> Do nothing maybe, else. But maybe listen they to listen to them while they walk through their wonderful Maybe that's what it is. Probably quite true. Streets or exactly. woods. Yeah, and it is one of the um, it's one of the great pleasures actually when you go around the world as you know you speak and bump into people who listen to God Pods in different places. It's um, quite humbling, really. Yes, you get chased out of one city after another. <laughs> That's the person you said that. You get, get told you don't look like what you sound like, which yeah, that's is right. always interesting. I often get told I look older than I sound or something like that. <laughs> Surely not. Someone said, I thought you had a beard. <laughs> Just for those of you who've never seen me, I don't have a beard, but never have had a beard, but there you go. But you sound as though you do, Graham. I obviously do, don't yeah. I? Yes. Yeah. Well, the holiness, you know, in the ancient church, of course, you know, the length of your beard was a sign of your holiness, so... So you're not doing very well. I'm not right? doing very well. I'm <laughs> deeply A lot of women person. have failed dreadfully. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, enough of this hilarity. We are going to go on to some serious matters here. And um, we've picked out three questions, slightly at random. We could have picked out all kinds of other ones. But um, uh, we're going to start with this one from um, uh, from Wendy, uh, who, uh, Wendy Ogilvy, who, who writes in saying, Dear God Pod, uh, I do appreciate your podcasts and I've listened to them several times. So maybe this is this is this is Wendy who's listened to them quite a lot. So um, anyway, she says, um, I'd like to ask what you think of infant baptism rather than believers baptism. I've read lots of different authors, biblical texts and so on. Um, but uh, sounds like she's unconvinced about infant baptism. So um, there's the question. What do we make of infant baptism? Is it a good thing? Doesn't appear to be in the Bible particularly strongly. Uh, so um, if we believe in it, and Christians, some Christians do, some Christians don't, um, what are the reasons for that? There was a, a, a nice story of two uh, pastors in, on an aeroplane found themselves sitting next door to each other. They both had dog collars, they knew they were both pastors. And one thought it would be an interesting opening gambit to say, uh, do you believe in infant baptism? And the other one said, Believe in it. I've seen it done. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think people have a, a lot of difficulty with it because it seems to be. You'd have thought that faith is required of the person uh, and somebody who's not yet able to speak, let alone think in those conceptual kind of ways. It, it's it's difficult. Um, 
I think it's important to see it in its in its context, which is a covenant thing. It's it's part you're welcoming somebody into the covenant community, uh, and that is something that happens because they are um, part of the family, brought up in that family, and because they are. Uh, of course, they have their own choice and their own free will, and they can just make their own decisions when they're older. But um, you treat them as being part of the family, uh, and they grow up with the privileges of that, not as second-class citizens, not as ex outsiders, uh, but as part of that community. And actually, that's what all Christians do. They bring up their children as if they are Christians. Uh, it doesn't stop them from being free. Hmm. And that covenantal understanding was always the way in which many of the reformers, of course, justified yes. infant baptism by saying that it was somehow parallel to, to circumcision in the Old Testament. You know, the, um, the Israelites were circumcised. That was their sort of, you know, as children, that was their entry into the covenant people of God. And now we don't circumcise people as Christians any, any longer. We baptize them instead. Um, Which has the great advantage of admitting women as well as men. It does indeed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And being slightly less painful, too. <laughs> um but I suppose it's, you know, at the same time, you might argue that um, you know, it's not explicitly there as a sort of, you know, follow on. It's, it's hard to find texts that explicitly say, well, baptism has now replaced circumcision. So, um, um, Jane, um, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, um, I'm speaking as uh, a mother of two uh, children uh, who were baptised in infancy. And um, I, uh, we made that decision that to, uh, to have them baptised. Um, for two closely related reasons. One was um, this was basically asking the Christian community to help us bring them up. Um, we, we, uh, bringing up children is, is not the easiest thing in the world. And uh, as Christians, we have the great advantage of knowing that we are not isolated, um, separated families of uh, two parents and 1.6 children or whatever it is, or one parent and three point... I mean, you know what I mean, that we are part of a bigger community. So um, baptism is a time when you ask godparents and the Christian community there to help you. Uh, raise raise these children in in the faith and 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 closely related to that is what Mike was talking about this sense of of, of the community um, as a as a as a new um, you're baptizing people into a new humanity uh, and as Christians that that's what baptism is we go into a place that where the humanity is the humanity defined by Jesus that he invites us into. Um, and that we all have to grow into and accept more and more or struggle with more and more. And um, as, a, as a parent, I'm bringing my children with me into that that place opened up um, by, by Jesus. And um, obviously then I can't force them to accept Christ any more than I can force anybody else. But at least I am recognizing this new place that has been opened up. And I think some of the <coughs> – I think there is a bit more biblical – linkage with um, circumcision than, than people often realize that Colossians 2 verse 11 says in him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism mm -hmm. it is precisely uh, mm -hmm. taking the place in the new covenant community that circumcision mm -hmm. took in in the old covenant community mm -hmm. and therefore um, I, I think it's legitimate to mm -hmm. extend it to people who are not of an age to make mm. decisions of them of themselves as it was with the with circumcision well uh, i suppose I, I approach this with a bit of um 
personal history because I, I was I was brought up in a Baptist family. My dad was a Baptist minister, and uh, my parents were Baptists, and uh, they were wonderful parents, still are. Um, I know my dad died a number of years ago, but um, my mom's still alive, and um, and I, I owe them a huge amount because they, I, they, I wouldn't be a Christian, I guess, today if they hadn't passed on the faith to me. Um, but I, I guess I grew up as a as a Baptist, and so I wasn't baptized as a baby, and. Uh, um, you know, when I got to, what is it, 16, 17 or whatever, um, I mean, I'd been through a period of sort of brief teenage atheism. And then when I came back to faith was, was um, uh, baptized at, at that point. And I've often sort of thought back on that and thought, you know, the you know, what that felt like from, from within and the sort of psychology and family dynamics of it. And again, I'm mean, a little bit like what you were saying, Mike, I mean, I, you know, my parents as all Christian parents do, treated me as a Christian. They taught me to to love God and to know Jesus as my saviour and to pray and to read the Bible and to do everything that a Christian does. And in a sense, I think looking back as a child, I think I believed much more implicitly than I probably ever have done ever since. You know, as a child, you have far less doubts than you do as you as you do when you're an adult. You know, you, you believe it because your parents told you to and, you, and, and that, that doesn't make it any less strong a belief. But I think what's struck me about it looking back is that I think the decision you have to make uh, as um, as a teenager, say, if you've been brought up in a Christian family, is different from the decision you take if you've not been brought up in that environment. So, in other words, for me, at the age of, you know, when I got into my teenage years, the, 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 the decision was not, do I opt into this? It's, do I opt out of it? Because I was already in it. Uh, by default, my parents had brought me up to believe just as they brought me up to brush my teeth but just as they brought me up to eat my greens and you know go to school and everything else all the things they knew were good for me they taught me that from the very beginning and I didn't have to decide whether I opt into those things uh, I was already in them and that's why I think it, it looking back it it's felt slightly odd having to come to this decision when you were sort of you know 16 or whatever to somehow seem to be opting into something that I was already in and actually, it seemed to me to make much more sense, you know, that that my decision was actually, do I carry on with this as an adult, uh, you know, with my own adult faith or my growing adult faith? In which case, it actually made sense to to baptize me right at the beginning when the when, you know, the beginning of, uh, of life, as it were. And so, you know, when our children were born, we had them baptized as, as babies, I guess, for that reason, because we knew we were going to bring them up as as Christians. And and uh, actually, they hopefully were going to carry on in that faith as they have done. Um, ever since so but I also would want to argue that you can't be born a Christian it isn't sure. so so people definitely do have to make their own decision have to stand up at some point and say yes Jesus is yeah is and baptism is not the same as birth it's, you know you're no. born but then you have to be baptized yeah. after birth because it's not you know as you, absolutely as you say you're not born a Christian you are born into a Christian family into the Christian church but there has to be that kind of point of entry, mm. which is different from your, your your birth as a first birth and a, and a, and a second birth, as it were. And, and I mean, unfortunately, even those who make a decision when they are old enough to make a decision uh, to be baptised, that doesn't necessarily mean that they stick with it. Um, yep. So um, th- th- it isn't, uh, in that sense, you can't guarantee that um, by not baptizing your your children, you're then le- leaving them free to make mm. a decision that will last for the rest of their lives. Yep. We're as human beings just not very good at mm. sticking with the decisions that we make, are we? So. Yeah. Whether whether the baptism is a baby or as an as an adult. Yeah. And it strikes me that baptism is something. I came across a website recently that that was um, about uh, offering certificates for unbaptism. Yes. It was an atheist's website that basically said, you know, baptism. 
you know, you can renounce your baptism and you can sign in to this thing and we'll send you a certificate to say that you've renounced your baptism. In a funny kind of backhanded way, I thought that actually testified to the power of baptism. The baptism is such a strong thing that actually, you know, if, if you if you don't believe, you're encouraged to kind of act, actively renounce it because it is such a such a mark. And I often think of baptism as like a it's like a kind of invisible spiritual tattoo that when you're given, you, you've got it for life, and you can ignore it and you can sort of live as if you didn't have it. But it, it's it's kind of there. It's your it's that mark on you. Um, that marks you out as a as a Christian. Now you may or may not live up to that in later life, but it's something that, that you're like branded with that thing. And I suppose as a, as a again as a Christian parent, I, I slightly wanted to brand my children as Christians from the very early days, um, hoping that they would grow up to know and love Christ and to, and to to be Christians all their all their all their lives. There is quite a lot of testimony to. Um, infant baptism throughout church history isn't there it, mm. it doesn't just spring up um, quite late on in the church's history there does seem to have been a yeah. fairly strong practice of it and as you say the reformers sort of take it for granted mm. um, and in their attempt to go back and be utterly scriptural in their telling yeah. of the faith they don't think it's necessary to get get rid of infant yeah. baptism and the interesting thing about that history i think is that you know if it was the case that the, the very earliest church never baptized babies mm. But we know by the sort of second, third centuries, babies were being baptized. You'd have thought there would have been a big major theological argument about it. But there isn't. There's actually no trace at all of a, of a significant theological debate over whether we should baptize children or not, which to me suggests that actually children were baptized from quite early on. Which is the most obvious way of interpreting the households yeah. that, that, that were baptised uh, in the New Testament. Sure. Yeah. But I suppose we have a stronger understanding of people's um, right to self-definition yeah. than would have happened in ancient society. I mean, in ancient society, mm. presumably a household would include slaves and all kinds of people who were adults but had no choice about, about their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is... It is very interesting. I do find the reformers really interesting that they don't, in any sense, question infant yeah. baptism. You thought they would have done it yeah. with this sort of return to the Bible, the yeah. original texts, and so on. You'd have thought that's what they would have done, but they didn't see that as a great need to do. Apart from obviously the the radical sort of Anabaptists who who did do that, but they were very much on the edge. And I guess the other thing about the patristic period is that you do you do hear stories of people who who, who delay baptism. So Constantine, for example, delays baptism to to his deathbed, almost as if you know he was. A, wanted to be baptised and then be sort of, you know, die in purity, as it were. But that seems to be a sort of exception rather than a rule, that it's very much delaying baptism and, and it seems rather to than be assuming a, that's the normal way of doing it. A, a misunderstanding of forgiveness um, that it's only wiping the slate clean and then anything that yeah. happens from now on is... is your yeah. fault. Your fault, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's going to be held against right, yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas it's it's the whole thing, it's sin, sins past, present and future that had... That taken away yep. so you don't have to delay baptism for fear that you might sin afterwards yep. exactly yeah although in constantine's case considering he murdered quite a lot of his family and so on he possibly had a point in uh, <laughs> not saying he'd renounced yeah the world the flesh and the devil well, yeah. <laughs> yes but yes maybe a statement of intent was exactly that's right yeah i mean i think the other thing is is just it's just worth saying that practically speaking i mean i, I have a friend who uh, was brought up in a, in a baptist tradition lovely christian person um, and because she just kind of blossomed into her faith, there was never an obvious point at which to get baptised. Mm. And she's now never been baptised. Mm. Um, and, and there's something 
kind of odd about that, something mm. that doesn't quite work about that. Mm. Uh, now, I know both positions have their trickinesses, <coughs> but I think... Trickinesses. Trickinesses. That's a funny word. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll let it pass. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's difficult to have a completely consistent yeah. policy yeah, exactly. um, yeah. that, that works in every situation. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you very much, Wendy, for your uh, really interesting question about um, infant baptism. And um, uh, we may return to that. Another another thing, another uh, God pod. I'm, I'm quite surprised we've got a hundred and how many years God pods and we've never discussed infant baptism, mm. as far as I remember. No, no, no. So there you go. There's always new things to talk about. <laughs> so we are moving on to the second one, which I guess is kind of related because um, infant baptism does raise the question of how you interpret scripture and how important scripture is in kind of forming Christian faith and Christian practice. And this is, a, I guess, a series of questions here from, um, from Zoe, who asks the question um, uh, about the theological interpretation of scripture. And there's a kind of a number of questions here. You know, how should one relate to the Bible? It's an ancient text. It's also inspired by God. How much should study be part of your um, devotional life, your quiet time with God. How should you create a, a theology of the Bible? So, um, how do we, just some questions there around the nature of Scripture and the place it takes within, I guess, particularly within the devotional life, the life of prayer, the life of um, of, of, of living as a Christian. I think I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive about uh, about how one uses it devotionally, because over the history of the practice of prayer in the Christian tradition, people have used it in so many um, different ways. Um, and obviously at the heart of um, the, the, the English Reformation, the Anglican uh, Reformation, is the, is the prayer book which wants to break open the word of God for all people to be able to access it. But that's done through liturgy, through reading together, through hearing um, uh, and uh, that would be very much in the context of the majority of people having no possibility of studying scripture. Um, and there's the ancient practice of Lectio Divina, where you simply read slowly um, a, a sh short piece of scripture several times and, and meditate on it. Um, and, and so I think my starting point would be that scripture is, is something full of the spirit of God, um, and God will is able to use it in a huge variety of different ways and and uh, and different um, contexts. So, uh, so the, the prescriptive bit I would want to put in is, please read the Bible <laughs> 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 regularly, um, daily. Um, uh, and and um, yes, I I'll, I can keep going for several hours, but I might let somebody else come in first and then come back with with more <laughs> on that. Saving your bacon for next later on, <laughs> Michael. Well, I think I think. How much should study be a part of it? Um, study is important because uh, we're called to love God with our minds, with all our minds, and and that's an important part of of who we are created to be, um, and therefore it's an important part of of receiving God, responding to God, delighting in God, um, being informed and shaped by God. Uh, you simply ask questions. That's what you do. Children ask questions. Adults ask questions. There's nothing kind of dry and dusty and academic about study. It's it's just being human. It's just using our God-given faculties of curiosity and uh, intellectual ability uh, in the service of chewing over the text and getting more from it and understanding more of God through it. Mm -hmm. And it is a it's a text that yields 
so many different sort of types and layers of of meaning. And sometimes I think we're a bit wooden in the way we read mm-hmm. scripture. You know, you, you you sometimes have this idea that you know you must there's only really one meaning of, of scripture, and you just have to get to what the original author meant. But I guess you know you, you always know that <coughs> scripture read in different contexts. It's not that it means different things, but it, different facets of it show its show itself in different context. There's a, there's a very fascinating article by um, um, a Reformation scholar called David Steinmetz, who was at uh, Yale Divinity School. And it's called The um, the Superiority of Pre-Critical Exegesis. And uh, his, his, his point is that, you know, the critical exegesis is more modern reading of the Bible, which is which is just about, you know, trying to, you know, um, just to find a kind of univocal meaning of the text, you know, the one thing that it that it means. And he looks back to the kind of medieval period where there was this sort of fourfold meaning. There were different meanings. There were sort of moral meanings and there were typological meanings and there were literal meanings and so on. And he's actually saying that um, that actually scripture is is a is a this hugely kind of rich text that in different contexts can be read in in, in um, sort of in, in a huge variety of ways um, and can speak in different ways. And I think this is where the the um, the kind of confluence of the, the the spirit and scripture comes together. The spirit speaks in th- scripture and through scripture. And that if if we believe in the scripture as the word of God, and we believe in the spirit as the one who inspired scripture and therefore interprets scripture as well to us. It seems to me it makes sense to say that the scripture, the spirit, can take scripture, you know, particular scriptures in particular times, and make them speak in a very powerful way, not in ways that are sort of um, in contradiction to, you know, to, to sort of original meanings that were there within the text, but can can bring out facets that perhaps even the original authors weren't even aware of, um, that we're able to see in the light of this, you know, the, the, the spirit's application of that text to a particular particular time and, and context. And of course, um, the, the scholarly readings of scripture have brought us huge amounts of fruit. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I just think, for example, of, of uh, our um, rediscovery of how um, of the, the Jewish context of all Jesus's thinking and teaching. Hmm. Um, and, in, you know, in the 19th century, very little of that would have been taken into account at all and how much that's opened up our understanding of scripture but I also think some of our anxiety about how to read scripture comes from um, this uh, fear about because it is an inspired text that this fear about surely if it's inspired it must have just one we must know exactly what it means Um, so for example if you think about um, different readings of Shakespeare. There was a, a wonderful festival a couple of years ago in which um, Shakespeare uh, was put. You saw plays, Shakespeare plays, interpreted by people from all over the world, putting on Lear or, or Macbeth or whatever in, in different from different contexts and bringing out entirely different um, nuances of, of Shakespeare because uh, coming from from different kinds of contexts. And we are sort of okay with that because Shakespeare is not scripture. Um, so it's as though, in a sense, rather than um, because it's inspired, expecting more out of scripture. Because it's inspired, we expect to, to we expect less. Mm. We expect mm. to sort of straight jacket mm. it. Mm. I, I agree with that, um, and I <laughs> saw some saw some of the Shakespeare plays, uh, and they were wonderful. Um, however, I, I think there's a bit more to be said for critical reading. I mean, I know you were saying that there is. Oh, you're an unconstructed place, modernist, aren't you, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> well, better than being a deconstructed one. Um, 
one doesn't want to build huge amounts devotionally on what the text couldn't actually in its time have meant I think um, that's not to deny, deny that God can speak through all sorts of <coughs> misunderstandings and confusions and and, uh, and the, nor indeed of course that he didn't speak through scripture before uh, the discovery of the historical critical method um, but it does act as some sort of control I mean, I, I basically mostly agree with that, but I just want to suggest one or two places where um, where it does seem to me... I mean, for example, think about um, the position of women. Now, the Bible actually has some extraordinarily um, generous and affirming things to say about women uh, that were not heard on the whole like that in a context which didn't think about women in the way that we do. So what it meant in its original context um, is uh, sometimes it it's not till later that you, you you see some of the extraordinary possibilities that arise out of scripture, which are part of. But but I would see that as being, as being part of critical study to be aware of the cultural context in which the thing is set. So it's not so what so it's not entirely that it has to mean what it meant then. No, but it is, but its meaning of. Is controlled by the sorts of concepts that would have been available then, the, the meanings that words would have had there. Yeah. One mustn't distort the, the actual words. No. Uh, and it may, and, yeah. And it may be that the, I mean, what I mean by the different sort of meanings of scripture and the different sort of levels of it is, is how scripture speaks into various different things. So, for example, you know, there was always the, you know, the, the kind of the moral reading of scripture, which is how a text applies to the moral life. Um, and the same text can also be um, a kind of typological reading of scripture, which is you know, how that text applies to the Old Testament, how it reflects and connects into kind of um, the whole canon of scripture across um, all the centuries which, in which it was written. Um, and it, I mean, Luther had this, this distinction between law and gospel. You know, a, a text could be read as law. You can read it as, you know, this is what's telling you to do. It can be read as gospel. This is telling you what God has done. The same text can be, can, can be read in both ways. And so it seems to me that you know, that that um, that kind of multi um, multivalent nature of scripture is, is is at least to do with a particular text. It doesn't just have one particular application or meaning. It can it can speak into the moral life. It can speak into you know our understanding of God. It can speak into um, salvation history and the whole of scripture. And and to look for those kind of rich um, meanings that a text contains is, I think, part of the richness of Scripture rather than just to confine it to one single thing. Oh, yes. I can speak into the imagination, too, and, yeah. and inform and in, inspire the imagination mm. in all sorts mm. of ways. I had the most extraordinary privilege a few years ago of being part of a Bible study on St John's Gospel, and um, our material had been evolved in a context where um, most people were not literate, um, so, uh, but uh, but desperately longing to access scripture, um, so the method was to read a passage together, and then um, and then to talk about what it meant in our lives and make connections. And what I found really really interesting about that was how very disabling those of us who'd had a Western biblical a theological education how how unable we felt to engage at at that level uh, we kept it kept coming back to but what it actually means is 
Um, whereas some of the, the other people were talking about the, the, the massive impact it had had on their lives, the ways in which they changed the whole way they lived, the ways in which God had spoken to them and directed them. And, and I'm not saying one or other is right. I think actually together we were really much stronger than, a, than apart. Mm. But I think, um, I think there, there can be something a bit disabling uh, if you don't expect God to address you out of Scripture mm. because yes. you're so busy yes. with the critical. Yeah, no, that that I, may I be the, the key thing to say about you know, the reading of Scripture. And I think if there is a if there's a criticism I have about the critical reading of Scripture, it's somehow the silencing of that divine voice speaking through Scripture. It's almost viewing it objectively as a historical text in its own context and trying to dissect it in, in that way and somehow almost disallowing the idea that God might speak to you through it. And I, I think, and I wouldn't want to just say, well, this is a nice sort of pious little devotional thing that we believe that God can speak to you in your quiet time or something like that. I think that's the way that the early fathers read the bible i think it's where the reformers read the, the bible it's where the, the medievals read the bible sorry the great tradition has read the bible um not just as a sort of you know little proof text or little sort of blessed thoughts through which god might speak to you but uh, this 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 whole rich depiction of of god through which god speaks in a very direct way I'm, I'm to absolute, us and I'm to absolute. them in their time. I think that's that's really important. But I, I suppose I don't see the critical task properly understood and properly applied as cutting out the divine voice, but helping us to understand. Yeah, there are different kinds of critical what reading. It, what it was, what yeah. God was saying in the original context, and sure. yeah, and therefore, yeah, that kind of critical reading I have no yeah. problem with. But the kind yeah. of critical reading that is that somehow disallows any sort of encounter yes. with the God who. Um, you know who, who who is revealed within the scripture, and I think that that's that's partly what we mean by by inspiration. I think uh, the inspiration of, of scripture that this is in some way both a human and a divine text, and you know we think that's a contradiction in terms, but of course it isn't because we know that well the incarnation tells us that it's not intrinsically a, con- a contradiction for something to be both human and divine at the same time. That's not saying that the scripture is the same as Christ, but it's just making the point that logically it's not. It's not true to say that something cannot be human and divine at the same time. Um, but this is a text which was written by humans in the same way that, in one sense, you and I might, you know, could write texts, but somehow God has breathed into it his His life, his authority. It's, it therefore becomes something which is inspired by God in that way and therefore able to speak to us in, in ways that beyond any other text can. It's interesting that presumably most of the early church fathers um learnt scripture mm. they, they couldn't pick it up and check their references they listened to it day in day out yeah. in worship and absorbed it and i sometimes uh, again think it's almost too easy for us now just to uh, look it up on the computer or pick it up in a book and yeah. that we don't mm. it doesn't become part of our bloodstream mm. mm-hmm. and you sense that when you read some of the fathers don't you you, yeah. you, you read augustine and every now and again you read a text where they try to reference all the bits that he refers to in the Bible and you end up with endless footnotes yeah. because, of course, and it's not as if he sort of, you know, think, oh, I need to refer to 1 Corinthians 3 here and I'll look it up. It's just that because it's so much part of him, it yeah. just comes out. As he speaks, he tends to speak in scriptural language. And I think that's what many of the fathers did because it was so much part of them. They almost spoke scripture because it was just, just their, their their language, their way of speaking, not not in a conscious way. Um, but because it had become so much part of them, they inhabited the text and it indwelt them. And um, so it's not like, you know, as it says in this text, you mm-hmm. just there's a little phrase of scripture that comes out and and um, 
the, the, the you know their voice becomes almost merged with the with the scriptural voice. Well, that is um. Well, we were going to do three questions today. We've actually used up our half an hour, and there's two of them. Do we ever manage to get three in? We do. Well, we occasionally chat on, try. Don't we? We do. I think witter is the word you're looking for. <laughs> you rabbit on on on, 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 on the questions that we have. So um yeah, so we never got got to our third question, and you'll never know what it was because I'm not going to tell you. We but might reuse it. We might reuse time. it. We definitely will. Another time, yeah. exactly. So um, I think we've kind of come to an end. We've um, sort of meandered our way to the end of another God Pod. Um, there's a very large pile of biscuits on the uh, table, which we've not really made much dent in, have we? It's well, hard to talk as much as we do and eat biscuits. And, and, and the engineer doesn't like us kind of crunching into the microphone. <laughs> Chewing, exactly. Yeah. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Anyway, um, thank you for listening. We've um, well, we've enjoyed it. I don't know about you, but um, it's been great fun to talk about those um, couple of questions. So it's um, goodbye from me. And from me. And also from me. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question... Just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.